The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, it is both an honor and a delight to welcome Dr. Diane Newmark-Steiner. She is a professional in public health. She's also a registered dietitian. She's at the University of Minnesota in the School of Public Health. But she has been the principal investigator for a project called Project EAT, Eating Among Teens. And that's why I was so delighted to have her with us today. Project EAT is one of the largest and most comprehensive studies of adolescent eating behaviors to date. She has published over 150 scientific articles, book chapters, and programs on topics related to this issue. I know that as a parent myself, Feeding children is difficult, and in today's society, it is probably harder than ever because of media's influence and because of our economic structure within our country. So, Dr. Newmark-Steiner, welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, you are the author of a terrific book called I'm Like So Fat, Helping Your Teen Make Healthy Choices About Eating and Exercise in a Weight-Obsessed World. And the book really is a compilation of the research and the wisdom that you have gleaned over a 20-plus year career doing this work with teens. And I have to just let our listeners know that on your dedication page, which I always like to check, you say about your children who the book is dedicated to, may you grow up in a world in which a person's actions matter more than a person's appearance, and may your actions make this world a better place to live in. What a great send-off, and it sets the tone for this book, which is both compassionate and yet research-packed. Every page has something that a parent can use. What led you to write this book? Well, first of all, thank you very much. I really appreciate your kind words. I wrote this book because I felt that we really wanted to get the research out to the general public. There is a lot of information that gets out to the public and in particular to parents, it's not, some of it's very good and some of it is not research based. And we've been doing this study for such a long time and have really explored many different avenues around adolescent eating behaviors, adolescent physical activity, obesity, eating disorders, body image, disordered eating behaviors. And I wanted to bring it together in an evidence-based but user-friendly way for for parents of young people. And that's exactly what you've done. It's evidence-based, but it's usable, and it's so rare to find that. And again, it's also compassionate. And how I read books is I tend to pick them up and go through different chapters, not necessarily in order. So I'm going to jump around here a bit. But there's something that you say here that is such a great take-home message that I, I must say it. You say, if you make healthy eating and physical activity choices, your weight will take care of itself. That alone is such a wonderful take-home message, that your weight will take care of itself 
try not to be led down the path of dieting. I, I typically tell my clients and consumers that I talk to that diet is a four-letter word. And it seems from your research and from what I've gleaned over my years of being a dietitian is that dieting is it in itself leads to eating disorders. Yeah. So what what I really have discovered from our research and from the research of my colleagues is that when we start placing the focus on weight, we get into trouble. And that trouble can either lead us to excessive weight gain or excessive weight loss and some type of eating disorder with either the excessive weight gain or the excessive weight loss. So, for example, we have just published a study, actually since the time that that book came out, it's a study that just came out this year, we followed our project EAT sample over 10 years, so from adolescence through young adulthood. And we found that the young people who were dieting when they were in adolescence and five years later were at much, much greater risk for weight gain 10 years later during young adulthood. And, you know, the question comes up, well, why is that happening? Maybe they were just heavier to begin with. And we actually adjust for that in our analysis. So we adjust for their baseline weight status, meaning that we take that out of the equation. So it's as if they were all at the same weight at the beginning. And we see that the people that diet consistently, so they dieted at one time point, they dieted at the second time point, they were at much greater risk for for weight gain. Why is that happening? We don't know exactly, but if you've ever been on a diet or gone out for dinner with someone on a diet, I'm sure you've heard something to the effect of, well, I, you know, I broke my diet, so I'm going to eat a lot now. I'm going to start my diet on Monday, so I'm going to have an extra serving today or, you know, that kind of talk. Or you go on a diet and you feel like you're missing out. You, you know, you, you feel like you want to eat more. Mm-hmm. So, so we think that these kinds of mechanisms are involved, and that's why we get to the recommendation, instead of focusing on weight, focus on your behaviors, and your body will find a weight that's, that's suitable for you, and it may be a little bit bigger or a little bit smaller than the people around you. Mm-hmm. And it's so difficult, I think, for both children and parents today, because on the one hand, as you mentioned in the introduction of the book, we are up against this supersized food system, and we have so many messages to eat more. There's one fast food chain that even promotes, you know, this forced eating occasion. And yet, our society is full of pressures, as you say, that promote obesity but reward thinness. And we've never had computer technology that is so fine-tuned to create images in magazines and in media so that we see images of bodies that are no longer really attainable. So we've got that illusion of what beauty is on one hand, and yet we've got this push to eat more, eat more on the other. Yes, that's exactly the situation. So so we are living in this world with very, very mixed messages, and then throw in that there's so much technology that people are less likely to be physically active as part of their daily routine. They can take steps to be physically active, and many people do. But you could also get through your day without doing much activity. Right. So it's it's a very difficult situation, and it's confusing for all of us, but particularly for young people 
who are in this process of of seeing their bodies change as they go through adolescence. And for young girls, the way that their bodies are changing isn't always in line with what they're seeing in the media. So it it is very confusing. You know, I just read in the paper today, and it's it's been on the news over the past few weeks, that young people have taken a stand against Seventeen Magazine, and mm-hmm. Seventeen Magazine is cooperating yeah. by now showing, they'll be showing untouched images. And I don't know the details on it, but it just makes me so happy that young people have taken a stand. They realize that they don't need to be passive recipients of these messages, and the media is responding positively. Yes, I love that section of your book. You've got a section that covers media literacy, how to talk back to some of these ads, how to question the media messages, but also how to be advocates for ourselves and our families and our communities. And I think that young people, and you point this out in the book, that they really do have an innate sense of justice and wanting to uphold that. And what a nice way to use that sense of fairness to improve society. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was interesting that you you describe something that you did with your own, I believe it was your son, where he used Photoshop Mm -hmm. to change images so the whole family could see how they could be more beautiful with Photoshop or maybe even change their whole body size and shape and just to see how easy it is to do technologically. Yep, It's, it's so easy. And that was a while back. Now it's even easier and you can do it you know, you don't even know anything has happened. And part of the issue is we were at a, a conference in Los Angeles and there was a photographer and an actress there and she came and they took off her makeup and then they made her up and then they showed what they could do with the photos to make her look even better, even though she was already just beautiful. And we were kind of outraged, the health professionals in the audience, and said, you know, you are causing so much damage to the young people. And they were kind of like, well, everyone knows this isn't true. Everyone knows that these images aren't real. And I said, no, that's not true. I mean, maybe you, you know that at one level cognitively, but when you're looking at these images, you want to look like these people. Mm-hmm. And so it's really, really good that young people are taking a stand to to make a difference. And that's that's part of the piece. Part of the piece needs to come from the media itself, and we've seen positive changes in different parts of the world. Recently in Israel, they put in a a law that models cannot appear to have a body mass index of less than 18.5, which Mm -hmm. is quite low. So some type of regulation is coming in at a higher level, at a policy level, and that's what I'm hoping we'll see more of. Mm -hmm. How did you become so respectful and compassionate about this topic? Oh, good question. You know, it started when I was, I became a dietitian and I was doing my master's degree and I was doing some work on the side with overweight adults. And there was a woman in my group who made a comment such as, oh, gosh, I feel so bad about myself because I I ate a piece of cake this week. Mm. And I just thought, oh, gosh, this is not what I want to be doing. I do not want people to be feeling badly about themselves because they ate a piece of cake. And it just struck me 
that we needed to be starting earlier in order to prevent weight-related problems, and we also needed to be helping people avoid this unhealthy obsession with weight. So I really felt like we needed to work from a younger age to prevent both obesity and risk factors for eating disorders. And then over the years, our research has just supported this more more and more, and I've realized how how intertwined they are because because typically obesity and eating disorders they seem is very different, and they are very different. Mm-hmm. Um, anorexia nervosa is very different to obesity, but there are some commonalities, and our work has really focused on the commonalities that happen in the general population of young people. Do you want to talk about some of those commonalities? Well, for example. In, in Project EAT, we, we looked at overweight girls, and we wanted to see what kinds of behaviors these girls are engaging in, and we found that a large percentage were engaging in disordered eating behaviors. I believe it was 40% of the overweight girls were either using extreme weight control behaviors, such as taking diet pills, self-induced vomiting, using laxatives, or taking diuretics, or they were engaging in binge eating behaviors with a sense of loss of control. Now, the extreme weight control behaviors, that's kind of a behavior that you don't think about when you think about overweight kids. You think about that when you think about really, really thin kids. And with the overweight kids, people tend to be concerned more about overeating, eating too much fast food, and not exercising enough. And from our research, we saw, well, no, it seems like with this group of overweight youth, we also need to be concerned about the use of these extreme weight control behaviors. Mm-hmm. And then when we followed these these young people over time, like I said at the beginning, we found that they actually increased their risk for weight gain over time. Mm-hmm. So it kind of came together, and we saw, well... You know, if we can prevent the use of these unhealthy weight control behaviors, hopefully we can decrease the risk both for obesity and for the onset of eating disorders. Do you see any commonalities in the family structure with kids who have disordered eating behaviors? I'm not sure what you mean. Are there familial traits are there certain things that happen in the home that might tend to lead towards disordered eating? Mm-hmm. So that's a good question, and there's a fair amount of research going on in this area, and it's you know it's kind of a fine line that I want to want to present when when I talk about this, and also when I wrote my book, I was very aware of this, and this has come up more and more recently as something important. So. The answer is yes and no. Yes, there are definitely things that families can do to decrease the risk of their child either developing an eating disorder or becoming overweight. But no, they can't totally control the situation. So even if I do everything right, I still may have an overweight child or my child may still develop an eating disorder because as as a family, we function within a larger society, which has many, many influences. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, I raise my children. I try to get them to eat healthy foods. I try to get them to feel good about themselves. I try to get them to be physically active. And I have a pretty big impact on them. But there are other things going on. They have friends that impact them. They live in a, in a neighborhood where there may or may not be parks. There may or may not be fast food restaurants. There may or may not be, you know, an abundance of fresh fruit around. They go to school, the type of food and the physical activity opportunities at school impact them. Their teachers may be giving them good messages or harmful messages. The school may be implementing policies where they start weighing the kids. They live in, you know, a broader society. So so the way that I like to frame it is that parents need to take responsibility, but we really should not blame parents when problems do emerge. And parents of children with eating disorders or who are overweight often feel very, very guilty and often are stigmatized for, for quote-unquote, letting their children get these problems. So that's why I say it's it's kind of a fine line. We need to look and see, okay, what can I do to decrease the chances of my child developing a problem? But if the problem does emerge, it's not helpful to go back and say, oh, gosh, you know, what did we do wrong? I was a bad parent. You know, I'm to blame for this. But rather look forward and say, okay, is what can we do now to help this child? If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Diane Newmark-Steiner. She is a professor and researcher at the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota, and she is the author of a terrific book. It's titled, I'm Like So Fat, Helping Your Teen Make Healthy Choices About Eating and Exercise in a Weight-Obsessed World. And frankly, I would like to see this book go home with every child from the hospital. You know, I have my favorite books for raising children well, and this is certainly one of them. One of the issues that you address in this book, and it would probably be put under that umbrella of how do we lower the chances of our child developing an eating disorder, and that is the family meal, which is such a challenge. Gosh, when I was in school, I didn't have any activities other than homework. And today, children face such huge demands. Uh, Many of them are working. Many of them have activities after school. They're in clubs. There are multiple children in the family. We have parents, I've spoken with with families where there's a single parent and the mom is working two or three jobs. We typically have dual earner families where two people are now out of the home. We come home, I think I read where we decide what to have for dinner if we're a working parent in the 30 minutes we have between our work environment and home. How do we make a family dinner a reality yeah, no, it's it's been a very, very interesting body of research. We got into this kind of unintentionally when we started our study. When we started Project 8, we began by doing focus groups with adolescents. And in these group discussions, we, we were trying to get at the kinds of things that might influence food choices in order to guide the development of our survey. And we asked about family meals. And what we heard was a great diversity of responses, both across children and even within children. So so for some of them, they talked about eating together every night, just like clockwork wasn't anything special. It's what they do in their house every day. And some kids um, at the other extreme talked about never eating together, 
because everyone's always running in one way or the other. They might just take some food up to their room, eat eat in front of the television. And then there were the kids who who said, well, when at my mom's house, we eat regularly, but when I'm at my dad's house, we don't. So all kinds of different patterns that emerged. And we decided to explore this in our survey, and we've been doing this for a number of years. And quite honestly, the the findings really influenced what I do at home with my own children because they were so compelling. So first of all, we found that many families do eat together. They don't eat together perhaps every day, but the majority of families eat together four or more times a week. Nevertheless, there still is about a third, 20 to 30 percent who who eat two or fewer times together as a family. So, so definitely an area that we want to work on. We found that family meals were associated with a number of positive outcomes in terms of what kids are eating, decreased risk for disordered eating behaviors, decreased risk for some psychosocial outcomes. So then the question, as you posed, is, okay, so how do we make this happen? Mm-hmm. Because, again, we don't want families to feel, oh, gosh, another thing I need to do. I'm trying to balance everything out. And my thoughts are, okay, we put the data out there, and then every family looks at what they're doing and says, okay, you know, would this what would work for me? What would work for our family? Maybe it's just having dinner together once a week. Maybe it's going out to eat in a restaurant. Maybe it's having Sunday brunch together. Maybe it's getting everyone in the family to take responsibility on different days because it can't just rest with the mother anymore because most mothers are working. How can we make this happen in a way that suits us in terms of the types of food that we're eating? So for some families, it's really important to to have a home-cooked meal every evening. But for others, you might just get some whole grain bread and cheese and open up some carrots and sit around the table and have that. So I think it's really important to to be kind to your yourself and your family when you're mm-hmm. thinking about this. Think about what you're doing now, what you like about what you're doing now, and where there might be room for change. And you actually have that chart in your book, and I loved it. It was I flagged it, actually, things I like about family meals at my home and things I would like to change, and it's a continuum. And what a nice way to be able to do an assessment of what's going on. And as you say, you don't have to go from zero to 100, but to make small changes. And one of the changes that I feel very strongly about is not having the television on during mealtime because, gosh, how can you possibly have a conversation? Yeah, many families do have the television on, and um, I think the television is on in different ways. I think for some people, like I said in our group discussions, you know, a child's taking his food into his bedroom, eating alone with the television. That's a very concerning scene in my mind, particularly if that happens on a regular basis. If it happens, you know, every once in a while, it probably is not a big deal, but certainly that's not what you want on a regular basis. Then there are families that may just have the television on kind of as background, mm-hmm. and then maybe there are families who are totally immersed watching television, not talking to each other. Maybe some families are watching television, but also kind of having a conversation about it. 
Then there's other kinds of text, and we're just starting to look at other types of media. We're just starting to look at, such as texting or listening to music or, you know, things of that nature. Yeah. So in our research, we found that you're better off not having the television on during during the meal in terms of in terms of what kids are eating. So yes, I totally agree with you. That would be my recommendation. But I will also say that we found that kids still eat better if they're eating a family meal with the television on than if they're not having family meals at all. I see. So if I had to rank it, I would say family <laughs> meal, no television, family meal with television, no family meal. Right, right. We have just a few minutes left, and I have one burning question, and then I still want to give you a chance to mention something that I may not have brought out from the book. My burning question is, why is it so difficult to talk to kids about weight? Oh, it's probably like sex or something like that. I know. I almost wonder if if sex isn't easier. You know, I think it's... It's because it's become such a loaded topic. Yeah. And because people feel so sensitive about it. Mm-hmm. Both parents and children. And I think it's probably the way that it's done. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if it was, that's what I think. And, and I guess, you know, could it be done in a way that's effective and not harmful? Probably. But I think the way it often gets approached is is in an uncomfortable way. There's perhaps an underlying message that's going on, so kids may feel judged. They may already feel sensitive about it. Parents may be trying to control their kids in 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 a way that they want. It's it's being done in in with the intention of being helpful, but because our society is giving so many messages about weight, it can come across as being critical, judgmental, or just hurtful because the kid's already worried about it. Mm -hmm. One minute. What did I leave out from this discussion that you want to bring to our listeners? Well, I mean, we covered a fair amount. Um, I guess I would just leave with, with what I kind of say as my mantra that our aim is to is to help young people feel good about their bodies so that they'll want to nurture them through healthy eating and through physical activity so so trying to promote this idea of feeling good about yourself feeling good about your body and then taking care of yourself and you absolutely provide many guides and skills for helping parents at all ends of the spectrum cope with these issues. And I I really can't thank you enough as a clinician myself, looking for ways to bring good information to people to improve the quality of their lives. There is a website for our listeners. It's newmovesonline.com. And we'll have that on the kopn.org website for our listeners to click on. I want to thank my guests. Dr. Diane Newmark-Steiner. She is a fellow dietitian and also a researcher and professor at the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. And we have been speaking about her research and her book, I'm Like So Fat, 
helping your teen make healthy choices about eating and exercise in a weight-obsessed world. I cannot recommend this book enough. Thank you for your compassionate, kind, and evidence-based work. Thank you for having me. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Dr. Newmark Steiner. <laughs>